Hey, it's Greg Brady. Welcome to the Toronto Today podcast. Great to have you in. We have a very busy show today. We'll practically get right to it. Let me tell you some of what is coming up and some of what you can hear. We'll talk to Dr. Neil Rao. Um, He's an infectious disease specialist. We'll also talk to Dr. Jeff Kwong. um, And I want to ask him about a quote that I looked at. I I didn't quite get it. So I do want the clarification. uh, And he's able to give it to us today about the vaccines being equal to the masks in terms of preventing the spread of COVID-19 and bad outcomes. I, I think it's a quote that needs attribution and some expansion. And Dr. Kwong is kind enough to come on and give me that so looking forward to that amongst many other things coming up on the toronto today podcast kenyon wallace and may warren uh wrote a piece um yesterday in the star the battle against airborne COVID has shifted why your mask is the last layer of defense um now i understand the concept of it in that the virus lingers in the air we breathe we played you know we played the Raiders of the Lost Ark theme yesterday over another Dr. Teresa Tam tweet. Uh, she had the day off yesterday from her newfound joy, which is tweeting that the virus is airborne. And you're like, yes, um, my kids know that. We talk about it all the time, where it's safe to not wear a mask, where you should wear a mask, how to risk mitigate, how to navigate what we think is okay, what we don't. And again, there's nothing as a parent, nothing I'm more interested in and laser focused on you will not i will not be deterred on this we have to get to a point where we get masks off kids we have to this there's this pitch battle in the united states and i'm going to talk more about it this is going to become my thing if that bothers you that it's my thing there's nothing i can do you want sincerity you want openness you want honesty you want transparency i give you that here i'm telling you it's critically important We're losing time. And I spoke yesterday to a mom who's got a seven-year-old in New York City who's really adamant about this. She's got a seven-year-old, a four-year-old, and a four-month-old. You can imagine, right? She's juggling a lot. She works. Her husband works. Seven, four, and four months. So um, this has hit uh, that kind of household hard. Um, Our producer, Sheba Siddiqui, has talked about how it's hit her household before. But when I think about my kids, I said to to the, the mom yesterday, I'm running out of runway here. I got a kid who will turn 16 soon. I got a kid who will turn 14 next spring. And they just haven't been allowed normalcy. Um, I understand that there have been reasons why that's the case. And you wouldn't have heard this from me a year ago. Oh, we got to get masks off, kids. We got to do this. We got to do that. No, I was I was probably as scared as the next person, as hesitant and nervous about COVID as the next person. Never outside. Um, never in circumstances where I felt comfortable and I consider myself a healthy person, but I couldn't wait to get vaccinated. I couldn't wait to get them vaccinated, but this game changes a little bit and it has changed, but vaccines change the game also. And, uh, and I am adamant that the priority has to be when vaccines are, are available to kids five to 11, the benefit of masking drops. The vaccines are better than the mask. We asked a question maybe a month ago on this show, six weeks ago, and I'm going to ask it to Dr. Kwong, bottom of the hour. True is my word. I will do this. If you've got a room, 30 people in there, and they're all vaccinated with no masks, and they're there an hour, are they not safer than 30 
unvaccinated people all wearing masks. Every doctor, every epidemiologist, every person I've ever spoken to would say the vaccinated people are safer. There's degrees of the safety, but that's that's indisputable. Vaccines are that path forward. You have to do other stuff. But if we don't talk about off ramps for masks for parents of kids age five to 11, and I'm, I'm not saying that time is now. You're not hearing me say get them off right now, right now, November 17th. No more masks on kids. No, I'm not. But you got to plan things out. And there's a uh, destination, there's a journey, but then there's a exit ramp and you get off the highway and you, you, you get to your destination post that journey. And when there, when it's, uh, I think we're getting into a spot with vaccinated kids for sure, where it's not clear what the utility is. And what I mean by it for, for the masks, it's, it's not. Is my kid doing it to keep your kids safer? Is my kid doing it to show that he cares? Because there's other ways to do that. Is this about being a good citizen? Because you tell me when that stops. I want to be a good citizen the rest of my life. But I sure as something, um, I'd love to use lots of words, I sure as something don't want to wear it in the grocery store a year from now, a year and a half from now. I don't want them on my kids' faces in school a year from now. And I get this all the time. Oh, my gosh. It's just a piece of cloth. You're right. You're right. It is. So don't tell me it's as important as the vaccine is. But that's that's what I want to get clear. Jeff Kwong has been a, I think, a absolute legend during COVID for great information. Here's his sentence yesterday in the story. I think the masks are just as important as the vaccine. We're all so fixated on the vaccines and definitely don't get me wrong. They're very effective. But I think the masks are just as important as the vaccine. I need to know a lot more about that quote. I need to know a ton more about that. And I'm, again, I I, I absolutely, absolutely, I'm not telling you that time is now, but to not have any discussion about it. Governors all over the United States, Democrat and Republican, are saying, we got to get to that point. The incoming New York mayor is saying, I can't wait to see kids smile again. I'll do whatever it takes if the science is proper and the science and the numbers and the data recommended, and we'll get masks off kids. I'd love to hear that from Toronto's mayor, but we won't. We won't. I'd love to hear that from the premier, but we don't. I'd love to hear that from the prime minister of the country, you know, Canada's leader, but we don't. And it's real simple. It's a real simple thing. Dr. Scott Gottlieb yesterday was on CNBC, by the way. I want to lay this out about the Delta variant and the wave and this and that and this panic. There's been a lot of concern. And I want to talk about this shoppers drug mart thing that's got everybody up in arms. I think it's ridiculous. But here's what Scott Gottlieb said about where we're going. And I don't think Canada would be any different based on the Delta variant. Cases might be ticking up a little bit here and there. Hospitalizations, they're down. Just to put this in perspective, one final point. We're at 24 cases per 100,000 people per day nationally. Last week, this time, we were at 22 cases per 100,000 people per day. So things are picking up, but they're picking up slowly. Cases are up 9% over the last 14 days, but hospitalizations are down 10%. So right now we're in this extended plateau. I think that's sort of a best-case scenario. It may pick up from here, but I think the best-case scenario is we get a month, six weeks of sort of this flattening, and and then after we get through the holidays, we start seeing cases decline again. I know we're not out of this. I know we're well past the middle, but I know we're not out of this. Many of you write me and you say, these guys won't ever let us go back to living our normal lives. Well, many of us are starting and many of us have stopped listening to people who work in public health. 
I will not. I've told you before. I will not play those clips. I will not put those people live on the show. It's nothing personal. But I don't buy into a lot of the information and fear that comes with it. Okay? I know. I get it. Listen, a lot of the game moved around on us. Two weeks to slow the spread. Get vaccinated. Then you can go back and enjoy your life. We're going to move this benchmark about how many vaccinated people we need. Now we need your kids. Now the city of Toronto. The mayor, Dr. Eileen DeVille, we need your kids to get to 90%. How you feeling about that? How you feeling about your six-year-old being a statistic? Now, it will keep your kids safer. I do believe that. But say that, <laughs> okay? Say that. Your kid could spread the virus to somebody else. Like, like I, I, okay, yeah, gotcha, 100%. But the mask thing... There's going to be a time when it's just a symbol and it's not a tool. And we're really close to that right now. I can't figure out what it has to do with, with my fully vaccinated 15-year-old, why he sits in class all day with a mask on. I cannot figure that out. I'm still, I need it explained to me a lot more. Well, you got to show you care about everybody else. Okay, well, when does that stop? When can he do other things to show he's a good person from a good family, from a good household, on a good street, in a good community, in a good country? When does that end? There's harmless intervention and there's intervention that creates harm. And we know, look at some of the numbers of where our teenagers are at right now and the things they've been limited from and all the buildup of some of the bad stuff that's occurred. Why don't you look at those statistics and lose the laser focus on COVID, especially if your teenager has been vaccinated and they're in a highly vaccinated community right now, like a high school or uh, or a street. I want to bring on uh, Dr. Neil Rao, infectious disease uh, physician. It's great to have you on, Dr. Rao. I hear you on with Roy Green quite often. Um, so thanks very much for making time for us today. Yeah, thanks for inviting me again. What is, what's your thought on, there's a lot of people debating this policy of, uh, of people coming to pharmacies um, for COVID tests with COVID symptoms. Um, I, I want it to be convenient for people. I want people to do the responsible thing. And if they're more you know, skittish or concerned about going into a hospital or an emergency room or a clinic, I, I, want, I want them to have that option. What's your thought on it? Well, the first thing I want to say is that a lot of those uh, people who are detractors of this current suggestion that pharmacies should do the testing used to say we weren't testing people enough. Okay, so you're, you're trying to find a balance. You want to test as many people as possible if you're trying to hunt and seek and destroy this virus in the community, which isn't really going to happen, all right? Or you say, listen, we have to accept that this virus is out in the community. We need to make it more convenient for people to be tested. We can't rely on hospital-based testing centers or public health-based testing centers. We need to democratize the testing and make it more readily available to people and accept that, yes, it's out there. There could be somebody at the grocery store with you who has it, who might spread it to you. There could be somebody at the LCBO who could spread it to you. And that we move to more of an endemic philosophy, a philosophy of accepting that the virus can't be stopped, but that if people want to be tested when they have symptoms, that those people, mm -hmm. if they test positive, will isolate themselves. But we have to accept that this is not stoppable. So it depends where we are on that sort of spectrum of philosophy. If we go to the early days of COVID where we said we could actually stop this virus by testing everybody and that by vaccinating everybody, we would achieve herd immunity and stop circulation of the virus. That was the old thinking. Then making sure that people don't show up anywhere except at a special segregated clinic to be tested, that made sense. Now we're moving more towards the, listen, let's find the hot cases, but accept that there are people out there who have the disease. And we also know some people without symptoms or with minimal symptoms yeah. 
and spread it as well. And we're not going to seek and destroy and find every one of those cases unless you want to go back to March 2020. Again. No, no, it, it's I won't call it rich, but it's um, it's convenient. Some of these people were st- staunch COVID zero advocates. And when it became patently obvious, that was a ludicrous, ridiculous policy. Uh, now, they and the way I look at it, too, is the more you make something inconvenient for people, the less they'll do it and the greater risk there is to their households and their communities. We were not essential workers were afraid before there were paid sick days to get a test, to admit that they, they had anything wrong with them. So they, quote unquote, played herd, brought the brought the disease to the workplace, brought it back to their households. And we had a lot more sick people and, and we had people die as a result of the yeah. lack of convenience of testing. So what do you which way do you want it? Right. Well, yeah. So here's the other thing. We vaccinated 90 percent of our population over age 12. All right. And we're now going after some of the kids as well. So we've already achieved a massive milestone as a country in terms of vaccination uptake. I know there are those baddies out there that we all talk about. They're not the driver of the entire outbreak. There are people who've been vaccinated who unfortunately lose their immunity and can be reinfected and can also spread just as well as those who have been vaccinated uh, and who get reinfected. All right. Or sorry, those are those who have not been vaccinated who get infected. So we, uh, I'm not saying people shouldn't get the vaccine. It's a very important yeah. personal protection measure but relying on the vaccine to stop transmission of the virus when we've already gone this far and then talking about third doses as the next way of doubling down, it's really amazing to see this. At some point, we have to accept that herd immunity is not possible. The CDC is now admitting it. It was in the LA Times a few days ago. If you look online, they're admitting that herd immunity is not attainable and that we have to think about this a little bit more like influenza. Right. It, it evolves year after year. And, you know, some sad things in life sometimes happen year after year and you can't stop them. We can't stop volcanoes from erupting either. Are you skeptical about the entire concept of a booster or do you just say uh, they should be isolated to people who are uh, who are vulnerable? Get, my mom is 76. She smoked for 40 years. She's probably not in the best of shape. She wants to get a booster before Christmas. She'd be eight months out from the second vaccine. Mm-hmm. I look at her and go, that makes a lot more sense than yes. than maybe uh, you or me needing a booster at right. this point so in time. Six months. Out. Strategy makes sense. Well, first of all, to reboost the entire country. This was a monumental task. You saw how long it took. It's not going to be practical all right if we have an incoming wave through the uh, uh, remainder of the year and into 2020 which could happen based on what's happened in europe all right then we want to quickly protect the people at greatest risk of reinfection or of infection following vaccination so there is a small group of people who despite getting two doses of vaccine can still land in hospital when they get exposed to this virus it's not a bulletproof vaccine like the measles vaccine in terms of protecting you from reinfection so First tier of people I worry about, it's those people in long-term care with a lot of underlying disease. People who are debilitated enough to end up in a congregate setting like a long-term care facility, those are the greatest risk for bad outcome. The next tier of people I worry about is based on age. So if you're Mm -hmm. 90 versus 80 versus 70, the risk drops sequentially. And if you're a community-dwelling person who's 76 and you're out doing tons of walks and skiing, and you're, you're the healthy, active 75-year-old, you're different from the 75-year-old with comorbidity. So there should be some tiering for sure. If there's a lot of vaccine available, that's great. But there are a lot of developed countries that still haven't seen another dose of a single dose of vaccine for a lot of their population. And the WHO has been critical of us going nuts trying to vaccinate the entire population with third doses. And this is the kind of thing I'm seeing on Twitter, people talking about third doses, not just for a select group, but for anyone and everyone. And Co- college college, college students, 23-year-old college students. Oh, yeah. Why? We, 
So, so the whole basis for vaccinating that young population was for the indirect benefit of preventing spread to other people, less than the direct benefit of protecting them. We talk about long COVID and so on, but the real reason to vaccinate younger people, the argument was that we're going to stop transmission to older people and achieve this magical thing called herd immunity. That's not playing out. I'm not saying we shouldn't have vaccinated those people, but at some point, you can't double down on a strategy that isn't working. This is like the Vietnam War of viruses. <laughs> yeah, it is that. I got about a minute. Do you think the, uh, I think we're in a better shape society-wise and preventing hospitalization and death, and that's the damn goal here. It's not to lower cases, but preventing bad outcomes of COVID. I think our boosting of those vulnerable populations is more important than vaccinating five to 11 year olds. But I understand to create confidence, right? There's emotion. There's emotion to everything in life. So I can't talk a mom out of it who insists their perfectly healthy five year old has to get that vaccine ASAP. I would vaccinate my healthy kids. But I but I do think the booster is a more important direction to go to make sure the most vulnerable to a bad outcome are safe. Well, also important is to make sure that if we're going to vaccinate younger people, now that you speak about that, that we also get them out of masks in schools. Masking a five-year-old or a six-year-old when they're trying to learn language and speech is not the right thing to do. And we don't see a covenant, a deal. If you do A, you get B in return. We keep moving goalposts, all right? The other Mm -hmm. thing we could be thinking about more is that there are these new medications that can be given to people if if they contract COVID and they're at risk of doing worse. Those are those pills you're hearing about. Not yet readily available, but I think that's a very intelligent strategy we can start thinking about. Maybe even in a long-term care facility, if there's COVID around, you start giving all the residents these drugs that prevent the virus from doing its thing as a bonus on top of having vaccinated the third boost of those people. And maybe at some point, healthcare workers might be offered this as well. But this is all future uncharted water. We've got to sort of think about new strategies, the monoclonal antibodies. We've got other strategies beyond vaccinating the universe. Dr. Neil Rao, really appreciate the chat. Thanks for the practical chat. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, Dr. Neil Rao. Listener sent me this tweet from Dr. Celine Gounder. She's one of my favorites. Like, like if you're going wins and losses, who's been who's been on it? Who said something that eventually everybody else said? Yeah, that's right. She's been brilliant through this. She tweeted this uh, November 8th. The new Merck and Pfizer antiviral drugs for COVID are only effective if given very early in the course of infection to facilitate rapid treatment. People should be able to walk into a retail pharmacy and get a test. So I'm glad the listener sent me that. And that's my point about these retail environments. If you want people to test, you better give them the option to go there. Okay, I'm hearing from people in rural communities. Their shoppers drug mart is nine minutes away from them. A testing center is 32 minutes away from them. You want to be practical and realistic about this or not. Okay, and we're going into many, many areas where we don't know if someone is healthy or not or or vaccinated or not. And we cannot put a mandate on grocery stores or pharmacies or um, a lot of indoor spaces. We like we're not even able to mandate here at uh, at chorus in the workplace. I, I think it's safe. I think most people have been fully vaccinated, but we don't know. So how long will we be paralyzed by that? Look, I'm telling you, there's still certain risk mitigation measures we got to go through. Of course we do. Want to bring on uh, Sabina Vora Miller. Uh, always enjoy our chats. Pharmacologist joins us now. This is a pretty hot debate. There's no doubt about it. I, I want to know where you sort of land on this uh, on this pharmacy issue. I think there's got to be practicalities and safeguards for the pharmacists and the testers. Of course there are. But to my point, I, I don't think you're going to get people testing as often if you make it more inconvenient for them. 
Okay, so I mean, absolutely, I agree. We need to be doing a better job of making testing accessible. Hence, then, no questions asked. We need to be doing this. Um, but what I what I I don't necessarily agree with is whether pharmacies are actually the right spot to increase symptomatic testing. And the reason for this is because many pharmacies are simply not equipped to have that. Um, you know, have that space that is required to mm-hmm. do symptomatic testing. I mean, you know, many pharmacies are, are pretty tight. They're, uh, you know, typically have very limited space um, in terms of, you know, what they can occupy in a pharmacy. And what you don't want is a pharmacy becoming a, a hotspot area where you can actually transmit COVID. So if you're coming in to, you know, pick up your medications, there's a chance you might be exposed to the virus at that point. Um, absolutely, that risk exists with anything you do, with anywhere you go, but you are at a higher risk at a pharmacy if you're also doing symptomatic testing in the exact same spot. Many pharmacies don't have a standalone room with the door you can shut and where you can have HEPA filters in there to increase ventilation, etc. Most of the time, it's out in the open. So, you know, I think that this is a catch-22 situation and that, yes, we should be looking at other avenues to improve rapid testing access. Um, but unsure whether pharmacies are in fact the place that we need to be doing this. That's interesting because when we had, um, and you'd recall this too, just so our audience does, because I know you know it, when we started um, asymptomatic testing at pharmacies, that was a big breakthrough and, and people got tested more. So they had to do it for work or, for example, my wife having to do it to go back and visit her dad in a long-term care home. She'd get a test, she'd sit there and wait it out. But I would say, and you would probably can corroborate this, we have friends that some days feel better than others uh, in terms of their health. They have to get a test, but she needed a set appointment. So you can't go into the, you're not supposed to go in. If you have a 1045 appointment, don't go in. Same as when we first got our vaccine. So I don't think, I think we can make it so there aren't 15 people lined up at a pharmacy down one aisle who all are coughing and hacking, right? We can do that clearly. Yeah, and I think the issue also is not just people waiting in line to get the uh, to get the test, but in fact, it is you know when you when you are getting tested, you're taking off your mask, so you do have a situation where someone who is who has symptoms is maskless, and we know that COVID viruses linger in the air for hours after, given that it is aerosol in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're basically putting it at a point where you have multiple people coming in removing their masks to get tested and you have all of these viral particles now lingering in the air for several hours after. And then if you have multiple people doing this in the day, you're just adding that risk. Um, and and the, the issue really has to do more with logistics with respect to whether pharmacies have that space, um, you know, with, you know, a well-ventilated space um, where people can take their mask off and get their, their symptomatic testing done. And most pharmacies just don't have that in place. I mean, I don't understand why we can't do a better job of actually giving rapid access tests. Agreed. Yeah. You know, like give your rapid antigen tests or, and, 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 and frankly, you know, there, there are other countries that are doing pharmacy testing, but they simply do testing outdoors. But we are not allowing outdoor testing whatsoever. It all has to be inside. And and lastly, people are capable of doing their own swabs. There is absolutely no reason why you can't just give someone a kit, go home, do the test, bring it back in, and, and just yeah. deposit it at the pharmacy. That's definitely a possibility, too. I think the idea of just having symptomatic people taking their mask off in a very tight, you know, not, not properly ventilated space 
cumulatively, that is the concern. I'm glad you brought that up. I, I always looked at the, at the states, and no matter what the state was, I looked at all the, the drive-through clinics and the drive-through testing, mm-hmm. and I thought we'd do more of that. I, I always visualized that we'd use, like, you know, BMO Field or Varsity Stadium or Lamport Stadium for either testing or the vaccines, and we never really did that. They, they were organizing soccer stadiums in the U.K. early in 2021 to do all that stuff. We We kind of didn't do that, did we? Yeah, we don't have a lot of that. I mean, definitely there are certain sites that do have the drive-through threat testing. I can tell you that my local hospital does that. It's fantastic. You know, they have it in their parking garage. The first floor of the parking mm-hmm. garage is basically a testing. You drive in, get tested, drive out. And and absolutely, we need to be leveraging that, especially in the months where, where the weather is fantastic and we have the ability to do it. We should be doing it because we know that's the safest avenue, the safest spots. Um, but inside a pharmacy, I, 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 I guess I, I would agree that I'm not entirely sure that's a great, a great that, that's a great idea at all, especially given that you know if we're going into cooler climates, people are going to be indoors a lot more, and we're going we might probably see a, you know a fairly large jump in cases and and having them all being done symptomatic testing at a pharmacy, I feel like it's just asking for I trouble. See, I see that side. I see that side. I I just I want as many people to get tested as possible when they don't feel well, and I think that's something that we weren't necessarily do. People were afraid. This is why we advocated, right? You and me and a bunch of people for for paid sick days for essential workers because I think we thought people were hiding their illness and quote unquote playing hurt, and that led to that probably led to a lot more spread in the spring peel region was on fire in part because of that every public health you know we'd have uh dr lawrence low on or, or patrick brown and they would say exactly that that we need more testing for people so people and and people need to feel safe to admit that they're not well when they aren't mm-hmm. i completely agree and i think that some of the um some of the reasons where we've seen these massive workplace outbreaks is because of that. It's because people, I mean, I think access to test- testing is one thing in this situation, but the second thing is just not having, like you said, the time off to actually get tested or the time off to wait for your results mm. or the time off to quarantine if you really need it. I mean, I think that we haven't done a great job of trying to ensure that workers have all of these protections in place, um, you know, when they're contemplating whether they get tested or put food on their on their table for their families. I think that, you know, there's a clear answer for many families. Um, they, it can't come at an expense of them having to pay rent or them having to pay for food. Oh, I know we were going to talk about masks. We're going to have to have a longer segment next week. I got a blast, but I loved having you on. You're a great follow on Twitter and, and keep doing what you're doing. I always learn something from our conversations and and your social media. Thank you very much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Sabina Vora Miller, our guest uh, pharmacologist. Um, one of my favorite places, it's period in Toronto, is Massey Hall. The names never change. The, you, you, you just get flooded with memories of shows you've been at and shows you wish you could have gone to. Shows maybe somebody canceled on you last minute or you had a university exam, whatever. There's this brilliant new book out and you can find it on Amazon or where you get books. It's unmistakable black and white cover called That Night at Massey Hall. I wrote a little piece for it. Our own Alan Cross uh, from The Edge in it. Uh, the, uh, the brilliant uh, musicologist Alan Cross is in it several different times. He's in it a bit more than I am. He is. I mean, I you know, Alan's got the music history and, and got the chutzpah, if you will. Uh, David Binks is one of the authors of That Night at Massey Hall, and he joins me now. Congratulations on the finished product. I obviously uh, looked at it. I And it's such a good book that it took me forever to realize, remember that I was actually in it because that's how good the book is. I didn't go searching for my name. I just I was struck by the photography, all the great stories. You must be proud of how it turned out. 
Oh, thank you, Greg. Uh, yeah, I'm delighted with how it's turned out. It's uh, it's exactly what I wanted to be able to achieve is to capture different memories of that night at Massey Hall for people. Uh, there are some there are some fun stories in there. There's some emotional uh, tales in the book. There's some stories of big famous nights. Um, it's it's a real compendium, and it's all locally produced. And uh, mm. we're absolutely delighted to be already shipping the book as well. Yeah, the, the, uh, hopefully in time for people for the for the holidays. I hope so. Yeah, it, it's a it's a very you know Canadian uh, Toronto esque book with a lot of Canadian content in it, but a lot of international and in, in, international artists as well that we'll get to um, in a sec. It's called That Night at Massey Hall. We're speaking with David Binks. Give me the, the the genesis of it. This was you were organizing this book before COVID. You were organizing this book before the the big renovations at Massey Hall. We all want to get back through those doors and see what it looks like. You this has been a long time in the works. Yeah, I would. I was at Massey one evening, uh, going back a few years. In fact, going back about ten years, and I was looking at old posters and old photos down in the Millennium Bar, and I was imagining those shows of years gone by, and and looking at the names and the images. And what I wanted to do was to try and tell the stories of those posters, knowing how much people like to reminisce, particularly about past concerts. So I set out to do that. Uh, we set out to capture the memories of people's. Uh, nights at Massey Hall. We did it all by online collection of stories and photos and memorabilia over a three-year period. Uh, and then actually, you know, through COVID, uh, people spent a lot of time, obviously, online, uh, maybe had a little bit more downtime at home than mm. they previously had. And so we were lucky enough to get a, a, a lot of stories come in during the COVID period. And then we put the book together starting this spring, and then, uh, as I say, we just uh, just released in early November. Yeah, it's ra- rather remarkable. I w- we can hear you fine, but but if you're moving around, hold it right there because where you were, just hold it because I I, the, I then I think the listeners can hear you perfectly. Uh, but uh, but I felt like you were moving for a second there. Hold where you are, and I got a lot more for you. It looks like from the book, the pictures are amazing, the anecdotes are amazing. Did you say we got to have a proper balance of this? Just having stories won't work. And just having photographs won't work without all these amazing stories. Is that how you viewed it? Well, we, to be honest, Greg, we had so much material. By, by the time we finished collecting, we had 1,500 uh, stories, photos, or, or items of memorabilia. And then the real hard work started. Or I, I thought the, the difficult bit was going to be gathering the stories, but trying to pick which ones went into the book, pairing them with photos, uh, building themes, building pages around certain artists and certain big famous nights uh, was was the real challenge. And gradually, as we went through the the whole process, we managed to whittle it down. And we've ended up, I think there are just over 300 stories in the book, and we've got 200 photos and items of memorabilia uh, that really span all the way from the 1920s up to the moment when uh, Massey temporarily closed down in 2018. And I know Gordon Lightfoot's set to open it up next week. I want to talk about that. Um, I I love reading. My favorite part of the book, David, is reading about those shows of acts that were, were just about to break it big. And I think any of us, like I saw Oasis at Lee's Palace in 94. That's like, that's a badge of honor to, you, you know, bet, bet. I was, I'm jealous of people that saw REM early at some, you know, club uh, <laughs> shows before they're playing Maple Leaf Gardens. But you document and you got great photos of it. You too playing Massey Hall. 
May, I got the set list in front of me right now, May 17th, 1983 on the war tour. And I can only imagine the energy of that show. And it's like buying a stock in a way when you go to a, a show like that. And then next thing you know, they're playing to 60,000 people every time they come back to your city. That That's exactly right, Greg. And uh, those photos that are in the book are taken by a Canadian photographer called Lawrence Kirsch. And I'd heard about that U2 show in 1983 and I'd read tales about it. And when we opened the book up for submission, uh, we got a flood of stories about that particular night. And, you know, the great thing was I couldn't find any photos to go with it. And there's the story about Bono climbing into the balcony <laughs> and the, the the photos that we and, and the interesting thing, as is the case, is if you read the story about him climbing into the balcony, we have it told from two or three uh, different authors who, who mentioned that moment, and they're all very slightly different uh, how they describe it. But I'd never seen a photo of the the mm. actual of, of him actually in the balcony. And then Lawrence came forward with one. Uh, in fact, there are three of Lawrence's photos uh, on the the pages to do with the uh, U2 1983 show, and I think they really capture the the audience atmosphere and the buzz that was going on and the power of what was to be a major major you know, global band playing a 2,700-seater stadium uh, or hall, rather, in, in Toronto. And it, the, the photos mm. tell the story, but the words complement it perfectly. The book is called That Night at Massey Hall. We're speaking with author David Binks. You can find it on uh, Amazon. You know, I've sat in that first row of the balcony, uh, and and sometimes you want, you know, you don't want too hectic a show in that first row. It's a long way down. We're lucky we've got Bono with us. I don't know what they would have done had uh, uh, <laughs> had things gone wrong uh, climbing into the balcony. There's another great, and now I wrote about Tears for Fears in the book, but that was Roland going on his own. There's a great story. Um, in 1985, they played three nights at Massey Hall. They probably could have played Maple Leaf Gardens a couple times over because they were that that was them at their at their peak with everybody wants to rule the world on the charts. So they play four nights actually at Massey Hall in a row, and they film the video in Toronto for Head Over Heels. That one there with the That's chimpanzee right. and. Uh, and the library, and they filmed that in downtown Toronto on one of those afternoons. Like, like what a page out of history! Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? And then, of course, you've got the, yeah, you've got the Rush recording of uh, All the World's a Stage. Yeah, you've got the Neil Young show. You've got the Dylan '65. You've got Bob Marley appearing there. You've got the Lightfoot in 2018, and we've got a couple of totally different accounts of that show, as well as lots of other. Uh, Lightfoot material in the book. He's he he almost runs as a theme. I, I can't tell you how many stories I read that started with, well, of course I've seen Gordon Lightfoot at Massey Hall, and then people would go on to tell multiple other stories. So a real affection for for his presence mm. there as well. I'm I I could talk with you forever about this. I am running out of time. I want people to get the book, and I hope we get to chat again even about it. But uh, a, a listener writes in on Twitter, asks about the tragically hip at Massey Hall, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's covered. I I forgot. I even forgot before the book they did this massive run at Massey. Again, a band that could always play arenas in Toronto, but they played about six seven nights in a row in 2009, like well before we knew the the, the tragic news about Gord Downey. But the, that that tour is documented. There's spots in the late 90s that's documented as well yeah uh, in fact i was there at the friday night show of that stand and uh the, there is there are some great photos of that particular hip stand we've also got a story from uh, gord's brother mike downey which is a beautiful telling of his his uh, brother's special nights at massey hall we've got a story from erica m 
uh, the tale of how her dreams came true uh, through Massey. We've got Ron Sexsmith explaining why for many years he didn't play Massey and then his personal story about what did happen on his first night on that stage. So yeah, it, it's packed with a wonderful material, fun material, uh, serious stuff. Uh, mm. Yeah, there are teenage tales. There are pot smoking stories. No, there are stories about taking your parents <laughs> to the show, and it's all on that night at MasseyHall.ca. If people want to order the book, and it'll make a great, it'll make a great Christmas gift for people. Uh, under the tree are there are there stories about smoking pot with your parents i'm not a partaker but i can only i imagine that that's happened a couple times as well in that venue i could be wrong you don't want to answer that (laughs) i see this text as well dave before we go uh i saw billy joel in this in 1976 at massey hall it was half empty then two years later he sells out maple leaf gardens two nights in a row exactly what we're talking about right yeah and i i think uh, that first time that billy joel appeared there uh, he may well have got booed off stage while playing Piano Man. <laughs> and that's, you know, those those are the stories that make you, uh, you have to make absolutely sure that you go and see the, uh, you go and see the opening act as well, as well as the main, the main band. Yeah, that's a good point. I never thought of it that way before. That Night at Massey Hall is the book. Real, uh, and go to thatnightatmasseyhall.ca. Really enjoyed chatting with you. Congratulations on it. I want to spread the word about this book because it's it's just such a fixture. It's it's The name stayed the same. The venue stayed the same. It's never closed. We And, and we'll be able to revisit it next week when Gordon Lightfoot has a, a three-night stand there. We all got to get back to getting out to these things, David. And I hope I see you at a show there. Thanks for making the time for me. Thank you very much, Greg. I saw this uh, story yesterday in the Toronto Star, and they talked to so many brilliant people. The battle against airborne COVID has shifted while your mask is the last layer of defense. And I reached out to an epidemiologist that I respect a lot, said, what, what do you think about this? And, you know, he said, this is great. But he did say, like, there's a lot of people shouting about COVID being airborne with what Dr. Tam said on Friday. And, you know, it, it's also polarizing us because then they say, well, the virus is airborne 100% of the time. Then they portray others as being anti-science it's just polarizing us more and it's it's just there's so many complications and there have been so many game-changing moments um our next guest um i know bruce arthur ends up uh, quoting him a lot in his stories and when bruce and i talk i say dr kwong said this so i'm happy he's joining us right now dr jeff kwong on toronto today it's great to have you on i don't know if i encapsulated all of what we're dealing with right now, but there's a still a lot of risk mitigation. We're all fried. We're all exhausted, but we have to keep trudging along, don't we? That's right. That's all we can do. It is all we can do. So I, I read your quote yesterday and the quote leaped off the page of me. And I, I didn't know if there was attribution uh, to it that needs further explanation. So you tell me if I'm misunderstanding it. Your quote I think the masks are just as important as the vaccine. We're also fixated on the vaccines and definitely don't get me wrong. They're very effective, but I think the masks are just as important. Is there, is there more to it? I'm sure you, I can't be the only one that is reaching out to you going, I've followed every word you said through this. What do you mean exactly by that quote? Well, we know the the vaccines are very effective, but I think, you know, we, we need additional layers of protection as well. We can't rely on the vaccines alone. And so it's like, you know, you get in the car, you know, you put on your seatbelt, you've got an airbag, you know, you're going to drive mm-hmm. as safely as you can. There's like so many different things that lead to, you know, that contribute to safety. 
And so it's like, why would you do one thing and not have like, why would you get into a car that doesn't have an airbag sort of thing? So that's why, you know, get vaccinated, wear the mask and, and do all the things that we've been uh, doing all, you know, throughout this pandemic. Uh, I think we just need to, um, you know, continue and we should just minimize the scenarios where we're not masked and in contact with other people. Is this grid risk mitigation still the same, Dr. Kwong? If you live in an area with a lot of cases, um, many experts have said, and I think we've most of us have tried to follow uh, these guidelines, it's worth wearing a mask indoors even if you're vaccinated. If you don't know the vaccination status of everyone around you, like at a church where it was documented in the story you were quoted in, um, or somewhere else, yeah, uh, at the grocery store is an obvious example where I don't know the status of someone coming past me in the aisle, and I also want other people to know that I'm conscious that they don't know my status. But if I was at a fully vaccinated workplace or I am at a soccer game where every parent and every kid has to be there in a dome, I'm I'm a lot less hesitant to think that it's necessary. Do I have that right? Yeah, I mean, it also depends on things like, you know, what's the ventilation of, of the place that you're in, right? If there's really good ventilation and we know every single person is fully vaccinated, then um, you know, the risk is never zero, but it's a lot closer to zero. And I think the goal is just try to minimizing the risk as much as possible. So to come back to the quote, when you say the masks are just as important as the vaccine, um, I asked this question to many epidemiologists a month ago. If we've got 20 people in a room that are vaccinated with no mask, they're much safer than tw- and they, they stay there for an hour, let's say. Let's say it's average ventilation. 20 people with a vaccine who are fully vaccinated with no mask, they're safer than 20 unvaccinated people with masks on, aren't they? I, I think um, I think they're, you know, both potentially safe, right? Like it depends. Like, I think we know that the vaccines work. The thing with the masks are we don't know that they're um, that they're worn properly. Like the people who you know mm-hmm. wear them just covering their mouth and not their nose. Um, and so I think, you know, like the thing is, the masks prevent the, the aerosols from uh, leaving the source, but, and they also prevent uh, the person from breathing in the virus particles. But it just relies on, there's just more variables there that can go wrong with the mask. If everyone's vaccinated, uh, you know, there's like a consistent level, like, you know, they're all protected to, you know, a certain degree. I think, you know, I think it's debatable which one is uh, really? uh, more or less safe. I think they're both pretty safe. Uh, so, just potential for more things to go wrong with the mass unvaccinated people. So you wouldn't feel more safer in the room of fully vaccinated people. You're not sure which room you'd feel safer in. Well, me personally, I would feel safer in a room with all fully vaccinated people. But we do know that there mm-hmm. can be breakthrough infections. Mm-hmm. And so I would feel safest if we were all masked and vaccinated. 100%. Yeah. Dr. Jeff Kwong uh, is joining us. The uptake for parents is going to be interesting. Um, uh, the, the five to 11s, does every day go by and you're like, uh, you know, I go to bed at night and I think about friends of mine who are waiting to vaccinate their eight year old or waiting to vaccinate, you know, 10 year old twins. Is every day a little more frustrating to you wanting to see all of us wanting to get to the end of this and knowing that that's that's even for not even for confidence and creating that layer of confidence for parents as opposed to the practicality their kid is very very unlikely to get sick but they want it for those people around them they want to visit grandma at thanksgiving they want their kids to be able to go places once again they haven't been able to go to 
Absolutely. I, I have a child who's in that age group uh, myself, and uh, we're very anxiously awaiting the approval uh, and the rollout of the vaccine uh, vaccination program in that age group. I mean, um, you know, there's just so many things that she hasn't been able to do um, because, uh, you know, she's not yet vaccinated. And uh, we're very much looking forward to uh, that happening. It's a natural scenario, too, to ask about a masking endgame. And I'm not advocating for it now, but I am watching this in the United States. Do we have to tie this? I wasn't a fan of the province coming out and saying, well, by this you know, arbitrary date, we'll drop indoor masking. We don't know what those circumstances could look like. We could be in great place two months prior to that. We could be really struggling with breakthrough infections and continuing to find all these unvaccinated people and convince them to get vaccinated. We've got to get our end game with masks via via metrics, don't we? Of vaccinations and lack of hospitalizations rather than an arbitrary date, don't we? Yeah, definitely. You have to look at the uh, you know current situation at the time, and I think we can look to other countries. There are so many other countries as examples mm. where. You know, they got rid of masks and then they had a surge of cases, right? You can look to Europe, you can look to so many of the states um, and even other provinces where, um, you know, things are good and then they are going well and then suddenly like they get rid of uh, masks and other uh, restrictions and then uh, cases rise, uh, you know, Mm. to a great degree once again. Yeah, that's that's got to be the big concern. Hey, Dr. Kwong, thank you very much for your insight. Thanks for uh, amplifying the message behind that quote. I certainly understand it better. And that's what I was looking for. Thank you so much for the time. Okay, you're very welcome. Take care. Dr. Jeff Kwong, infectious disease uh, specialist. Look, there's there's a lot there. Um, There's no doubt about it. I'm sure what we'd absolutely agree on. It's the unvaccinated that are putting everyone at risk. I don't know what what else can you say about it? They can get sick. They can easily transmit the virus. The pandemic continues to rage on in some circumstances because the unvaccinated are keeping it that way. But I'd make the case. This is what I'm this vaccines are offering significantly better protection against COVID-19 than masks do. Do them both. You got a great scenario happening, but eventually you'll be vaccinated and dropping the mask. We get that right. Like vaccines seem to be forever masks not so much because there's other deficits we suffer, especially our kids because of them. Um, but we wanted to update you. I don't know that we've ever Googled in the Brady household uh, wild boars more than we have in the last uh, 36 hours. We don't live in North Pickering, but we're close enough and got a lot of friends and neighbors. Here's the headline on uh, the Global News website. North Pickering having a hog of a time with wild boars on the loose. Stop that. Whatever. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's, everything's okay. Uh, but we want to get uh, a figure yeah, a figure out, basically, on what the situation is, how it happened, where these wild boars come from, how do we capture them, how do we, you know, um, make people less less conscious uh, that they could be out for a jog or kids waiting for a school bus and they wander up. Um, so an expert is necessary because I'm no expert. Lauren Tonelli is a resource management specialist for the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters. Sorry about that uh, headline, Lauren, about the hog wild thing. There's nothing I can do about it. I don't write them. Um, it's a constant complaint of mine, to be honest. Uh, this uh, story is ripe for all sorts of puns. It is that. It is that. When did this first, uh, you know, get on your radar as something you're, you're getting reports? Do you get phone calls, emails? How does how does that manifest itself? Yeah. So we've actually been working with the government for a while now to uh, capture these reports, um, so people can reach out to the OFAH 
<clears throat> excuse me, and uh, report any um, wild pigs that they see. Um, this particular group, we kind of found out after the fact, uh, kind of early November, like everyone else did. Um, but this one's a big one. These are, these are you believe, and most people seem to, that these are Eurasian wild boars. They're obviously not indigenous. So the great, the, so many questions, right? Could a farmer have purchased these at some form of an auction and then had them, you know, on his farm and they got loose? What's the best theory as to where they came from? Yeah, so uh, people in Ontario, farmers have been bringing in wild boar for a while now as kind of a novel form of meat. Um, you can see it sometimes in more fancy restaurants. You'll have wild boar on the menu, that sort of thing. And basically every wild pig sighting we've had in Ontario um, has likely come from an escape from a farm. And it's very likely that these pigs in Pickering are an escape as well. But it's legal to have them, right? It's legal to have them on on a farm. So as of right now, it is. However, okay. uh, the government has made some great changes. So moving forward, um, by 2024, uh, Eurasian wild boar farming in Ontario will be completely illegal. So you won't be able to bring mm. them in. You won't be able to have them or sell them. And that will drastically reduce the risks um, of Ontario getting a widespread wild boar problem. Do you think there's a farmer out there who knows exactly what happened, how they got out, how they got released, and just isn't coming forward for, you know, he doesn't want his farm investigated or he or she is kind of embarrassed that they're out there. Someone's Someone knows more about this and could easily step up and speak up, could they not? It's very likely that uh, the farm that these came off of are aware that they've lost them, and it's possible that they might be working uh, with uh, the ministry to try to... Um, to capture them. Uh, moving forward, any farmer who does lose a pig will be legally required to reach out to the ministry, uh, tell them that they've lost a pig, and try to recapture that pig as soon as possible. Mm. Uh, it's uh, a, Lauren Tonelli joining us, resource management specialist, Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters. Yeah, like I lose my car keys all the time, but I these are like you should be able to know if you've lost these. That's fairly yeah. obvious. <laughs> yeah, especially this size of a sounder. Are they dangerous? So they definitely can be. Uh, they're large animals. They can become very aggressive. Uh, some Eurasian wild boars uh, have those very large, sharp tusks. From the pictures I've seen, it doesn't appear that any of the ones in Pickering do, uh, but it's not impossible. Uh, so definitely you know, the public should stay away from them as much as possible. Uh, don't try to feed them. Don't try to go up to them. They are feral animals. Um, so they do possess some sort of risk to the public. Last couple questions. When people see the video and they're like, my God, there's like 14 of them and there's big ones and little ones. Do they breed? Do they uh, reproduce? Could they have been out um, on the loose for quite some time or would they have all broken out of the same pen? Like, you don't you don't get these babies running around. They, they haven't been loose for six, eight months, have they? No, we have no reason to believe that they've been out that long, especially in that area. You'd think that if they had been out sooner, you'd get reports. It's a pretty highly populated area. Um, so they would likely have been reported a long time ago if they had been 
a long time ago. And it doesn't appear like they have any any new piglets. Um, so we're very hopeful that this is one single sounder and that they can be captured all together. What happens when they get captured? So the ministry will go out and set uh, kind of like a corral trap that allows the pigs to go in, but not to come back out. And they'll set up uh, cameras around the trap uh, mm. to know when they've got all of the pigs in, in the trap, and then they'll go and collect them. And if they have been able to contact the the owner, they might be able to um, talk about what the best way forward is for oh. these pigs. But if they can't contact an owner, then they will unfortunately be euthanized. Ah, um, and there's no, uh, obviously right now there's no, uh, reward. I'm not trying to spur up our listeners to go on, uh, you know, and, and get a net and a, and a pen. Those are hard to manufacture out of nowhere, but there's no reward right now. No. And it's really important to stress that the capture of these pigs should be done by trained professionals, um, going out and trying to shoot them or no. capture them is definitely not the solution here. Um, mm. It will like likely scatter the pigs if someone tries to remove a couple of them. Mm. It's really important that all of the pigs be removed at once uh, because they're quite smart. Um, if they learn how to avoid humans, they become very difficult to trap in the future. Uh, well, yeah, and we've we've all, all of us have had an experience avoiding humans over the last twenty months. So these <laughs> pigs are probably also. Yeah, they don't. They, it's not like they don't know what's going on. They're like you said. They're they're smart animals. I hope we have a happy ending. I hope if there's an update, you'll come back on the show and we can figure out how how there was a a, a good a good resolution uh, for these pigs and and we figure out how this happened in the first place. Thanks for uh, taking the time to do this. Thanks so much, Lauren Tanelli, joining us, resource management specialist, Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters. I went along one time, one time for a ride along in a with a with a cop in Michigan because it was good prep for uh, the show. We wanted a cops. We had lots of cops listening to the show. And I said, I wanted to do it. The guy, this is before social media. The guy messages in, he might've even faxed or whatever and said, you can do that. And so I did it. I want to, I want to revisit the concept of a ride along for the wild boar capture. I'd like, I want to be there in essence. Uh, we say good morning to uh, Sheba Siddiqui. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. I saw you yesterday briefly, but, we're not going to talk about that, right? <laughs> <laughs> meetings, meetings, meetings. Oh, there were so many important meetings as well. We just <laughs> listened mostly in that one. We weren't the experts, but we're the experts on this one. We're the experts on debating on TV and people getting all fired up. Um, I, I meant what I said. I've watched The View almost since the beginning of the show, right? When Barbara Walters would be on. Really? And, yeah, really? yeah. I was always on at the gym. Always on at the gym <laughs> when I lived in Michigan. Oh, I can I name so you all, had no choice. I can That's name why. almost, you and I could play like, you know the game Hot Potato where somebody says something and then you have to respond with another, like if I said, you know, countries in Central America, I give a country and then you give a country, you know, so that's hot yeah. potato, right? Yeah. I could I could win hot potato by listing uh, all the hosts of The oh, View. No. Even the ones wanna, that have left. Yeah, yeah. Lisa Ling, right? Who's on CNN. She's great. Oh, fantastic. You ever watch that show, This Is Life with Lisa Ling? Yes, she's great. Now, there's some I didn't like very much. I didn't enjoy uh, Sherry Shepard. Sherry Shepard um, thought the earth was flat. So that's a problem. <laughs> um, who else? Oh, uh, they had Raven Simone on there, right? The former child actress. She hosted for a little while. You know more than me. I don't remember that. <laughs> and uh, Megan, Megan McCain. Do you, have, uh, do you have some Megan McCain uh, oh, takes? Yeah, she, I Big actually fan? liked her on there. Oh, it was you? great debate. 
It was good debate. I don't know who the best four have ever been. Oh, Star Jones. That was the one. And Tracy Morgan on SNL would dress up as Star Jones. I'm not sure he'd be allowed to do that now. <laughs> I do remember Then again, Keenan Thompson dresses up as Whoopi Goldberg, and nobody seems to have... I'm okay with that. Jeez. Oh, I haven't seen that. It's pretty good. Seen that. So yesterday, um, now there's a former host uh, named Jedediah Bila. And yes. okay, so I I actually haven't seen her much on the show, but her politics tend to lean right, and and you need you do need that on that show, that's for sure. She was uh, she became a permanent uh, host, but only was there maybe three or four years, and then um, she's a host on Fox News now. Okay, or she parted ways with them in May. But here's the audio. I want to see what your thought on it is. They have her on to talk about her book, but she's also unvaccinated, but. Like you tell me, and, and this is good for the audience too. see if they really want to have a conversation with her. And then when she actually says something factual about COVID, that's the point I think they cut her off. Here's how it went yesterday on the show. I am not anti-vax. What I really want is for people to make these decisions for themselves. I want every one of you to sit with your family members, to sit with your trusted doctors and to say, what is the best decision for me? However, I do oppose mandates. I oppose them on the fact that Let's look at the science. This is a vaccine that was created to prevent severity of disease and to prevent hospitalizations. Now, we can have a whole debate on that in itself, but the vaccine does not prevent you from getting COVID and does not prevent you from transmitting COVID. Oh, my COVID. goodness. Reality, no, and we have that's seen that. not so. Come on. No, You've been at Fox TV you too have to enjoy. You don't have to listen to me on that. You don't have to listen to me. You can listen to the director of the CDC. You can look at the CDC's website. That is why masks were reinstated for people who were vaccinated, because they said, and they admitted, they came out and said, this for this Delta variant, transmission is going I, to be a thing for vaccinated and you know unvaccinated what, people. So I'm not opposed to the vaccine, you know what, but I Jen? am opposed to the mandate 100% on the grounds of people have died from COVID, including right. Manny's in-laws. And I just, we've been friends a long time, but I just, uh, Manny's parents, I just don't understand why you would choose to prioritize your personal freedom over health and safety of others. And so I just, I just, I just so really again, don't think that we again, should allow Sonny, this kind of misinformation again, um, on, again, on our Sonny, website. Again, Sonny, I am we've prioritizing... We've had the United States Surgeon General debunk. Yes, I heard what he said. Everything that you've just said, and I just don't think no. we should we should so a, you allow have this kind General of misinformation on, of all, on our air. I'm, Sonny, I'm really sorry, Sonny, my First of all, I'm really sorry, Sonny, my First friend. of all, I would say to you as a friend, what I just said to you is, I am prioritizing my health, and people talk about the common over good. the health and safety you're not of, have of other people. If you're not prioritizing your own health. All right, what do you think of all the lie? Where's the lie? Where's the lie in that? As far as I know, I'm vaccinated and I can still contract COVID and I can still pass it on to someone. As far as I know, isn't that correct? Totally correct. Yes. All these infectious disease specialists that come on our station, that's what they have taught me. So I don't know what they're harping on about. Sure, she's not vaccinated. I see the tension in that. Yep. There's a there's a beginning of that. I saw I saw the entire clip where the beginnings are like, unfortunately, she couldn't come into studio today because you know they have a policy in the entire building you have to be vaccinated. And there's a little bit of an edge and some tension right off the top from that, even before Jedediah started speaking. So where is the lie? Because she's correct in that. And sure, I get there's this huge polarization that the vaccinated and the unvaccinated with all of us, with our friends, with our families, with get get-togethers, with Christmas coming up, with Thanksgiving, and there's a lot of tension, but. She's not lying. She's not. There, there's the quote. The vaccine does not prevent you from getting COVID, transmitting COVID. Behar groans. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you have been at Fox News too long. Like, yeah, that's dangerous to know it so little. Is, it is. And you have to have these conversations, Joy. 
Joy yeah. just cut her off and wanted her gone and kept yelling about misinformation. No, what she's saying, Jedediah is, is speaking truth. But they just don't like what they're hearing. They're calling it misinformation and then they cut her off. That's not how we're going to move forward with anything anymore. And this whole cancel culture that we live in, we have to have these conversations. We have to hear both sides of it. Because you can't just shut people down if you don't agree with them. Yeah, that's what that when people like I think people dug in on Aaron Rodgers, but I think that was a different story because I think he was almost propagating propagating the myth of well, it's it's just not da- that dangerous for that many people. So like I, I I don't know. She drops that like it doesn't prevent you from getting COVID, transmitting COVID. Sonny Hostin drops seven hundred sixty-two thousand people have died. Well, who would deny that? Who yeah. would deny the danger for an unvaccinated person of who who didn't acquire immunity from getting it in, in the first place and who isn't vaccinated? I agree. If they want to go the card, Sheba, that, um, you know, Bela's putting herself and others at risk. Yes, I would say that's true. But I the, for them to cut her off at that point and then it's, it looks already like, you know, you and I. You and I aren't dumb people. I think we can sniff out a setup. Do they sit there b- beforehand and go, this is only going to last about, like, they had to go to break, so to speak, and she was only yes. on there for about three minutes. So they're not setting her up for a nine, ten minute conversation like we would on this show or like they would in an opening segment, are they? I think they know they're going to turf her, which is terrible. They wanted good TV. That's what they wanted. That's what the view often does. And oftentimes it is great TV. Who doesn't like the drama, right? People love the drama on our show. Come on. When you go off like a diva, that's what it's all about. The bottom line is, even if you're vaccinated, you can still get COVID. You're um, you're less likely to be hospitalized, but you can still get it and pass it on. Like, I feel bad also. And like, who's in that Who's in that crowd? Like people or like Muppets? Like, I, I don't understand. <laughs> Like, honestly, the people are, like, clapping, probably driving home. Well, they're from, telling them to, right? The That's t- how it is. Yeah, the they're, studio. Prob- they're probably driving home. That Boy, Joy showed, sure showed her. I'm glad she stopped that misinformation that you could test positive for COVID if you get the vaccine. Of course you can. It was never meant to prevent that. Yes. And there's an audience coordinator in front of the audience telling them when to clap and when to cheer. So no, that's we, where that came from. We need one of those <laughs> at some point in time. Thanks for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. You can find us live tomorrow morning for our Thursday show between 5.30 and 9 a.m. on Global News Radio 640 Toronto.